Well, you can take your Bibles and turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. We're working our way through Paul's letter to the Colossians. For the last two weeks, we've been considering the supremacy of Christ over all things. And today, that same theme continues as we finish out this rather stunning paragraph from the Apostle Paul. So Colossians chapter 1. Our text is going to pick up in the middle of verse 18 and then run through verse 20. But for our reading, we're going, to, we're going to start reading in verse 15 so that we hear the entire paragraph uh, together. So if you would, please follow along with me as we read from God's Word. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church, beginning in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray. Father, please help us now as we come to hear Your word preached and proclaimed. Please help us by giving us ears to hear and a heart to believe. Lord, please watch over our time together. Keep me from error. Father, help us to be guarded in the truth as our brother already prayed earlier. Help us to hold fast to Christ. Help us to grow, God, in the knowledge of Christ that we might be strengthened both to trust Christ and to love Him and to live for His glory. Would You help us now, God? We need Your help. Apart from You, we, we cannot understand your word. Apart from you, we can do nothing. And so we pray that you would help us in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. C.S. Lewis, in his insightful story, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, captures what is perhaps an overlooked aspect of the Christian gospel. If you've read the book, then you'll surely remember that when Lucy Pevensey arrives in Narnia, she finds the land locked in a perpetual winter with no hope of spring to come. Even the citizens of Narnia know that something is dreadfully wrong with the world. The first person that Lucy meets when she arrives is a fawn named Mr. Tumnus. And Mr. Tumnus tells Lucy that in Narnia it is always winter, but never Christmas. It's always winter, but never Christmas. How awful, Lucy says. And she's right. For the world to be cold and frozen and lifeless, with no hope, no end, no spring in sight, it's always winter, but it's never Christmas. Later in the story, however, as the children journey through Narnia, something changes. They hear the distant ringing of bells, and at first, everyone hides thinking that it's the white witch out on the hunt for her enemies. 
But then as the sound of the bells gets closer, the children see a sleigh driven by a large man in a white beard and a bright red coat. And it's Father Christmas, of course, and he has returned to Narnia. I have broken through at last, he tells the children. Her magic has kept me out for a long time, but now it is weakening. Christmas, it seems, has returned to Narnia, and that means that the winter will end and spring is just around the corner. But then Father Christmas delivers the best news of all, and it's here that we learn Lewis's insight about the gospel. Father Christmas tells the children, Aslan is on the move. Merry Christmas. Long live the true king. And from that point forward, everything in Narnia changes. The snow begins to melt, and the ice begins to thaw, and as these blades of green grass start to poke up from the frozen ground, it becomes clear, unmistakably clear, that everything will be right and good again. Why? Because the king has come back. The king has returned to his land. That's Lewis's insight. Narnia is not as it should be, but when the king returns, he will make all things new again. Friends, you'll look long and hard to find a more compelling picture of what the Bible calls the hope of a new creation. Don't let the children's story obscure for you the truth. You'll look long and hard to find a better picture of what the Bible calls the hope of a new creation. Like winter without Christmas, our world is not as it should be. Creation, as Paul tells us in Romans 8, lies under the curse. When Adam and Eve disobeyed God in the garden, they plunged the entire world into sin. We tend to think of sin primarily in its human terms. How we, by nature, are slaves to sin and spiritually dead before God. And that's true. The curse of sin has enormous consequences for humanity. But sin's curse is felt also in the creation itself. The creation suffers in bondage to corruption and futility. Like a mother in childbirth, our world is groaning for life to come. Again, we tend to overlook this because even as Christians, we largely explain the world through a naturalistic lens. We explain everything in merely scientific terms. From hurricanes to heat waves, from droughts to diseases, we see only cause and effect. But the Bible presses deeper and says that such horrible things are evidence that something is dreadfully wrong and needs to be made right. You see, if you take the Bible seriously, even the, this world, even the creation is telling us that we need the Gospel. Even this world is telling us that we need redemption. The hope that somehow both this world and our cold, wintry hearts can be made new again. And that hope, friends, is at the heart of this passage today. In order to understand these verses from the Apostle Paul, you have to think in cosmic terms. You have to think in cosmic terms, universal terms. You have to start in Genesis 3 and a world that is locked in sin's tyranny, but then you have to look ahead to Revelation 22 and a city with no darkness and no tears. You have to think in cosmic terms because that's the scope of Christ's supremacy. Like Narnia's perpetual winter, our world is not as it should be. But like Aslan's return, the resurrection of Christ breaks in with this unstoppable power. That's the essence of Paul's teaching in verses 18 to 20. The essence of his teaching is that Christ has crushed sin's tyranny over God's world. And therefore, 
just as Mr. Lewis pictured for us so well, there is hope that all things will be made new again. That's Paul's teaching in a sentence, that all things will be made new again. Now, before we look at the details of this hope, I do want you to see something of the big picture in this text. Over the last two weeks, we've been considering Christ's supremacy over all things, specifically His supremacy over creation in verses 15 and 16. Christ made all things, and therefore Christ reigns over all things. But as we enter verses 18 to 20, you'll notice that Paul has shifted his focus now to redemption. Look at verse 20 and notice the language of reconciliation and making peace by the blood of the cross. That's redemptive language. Redemptive language. But notice also the reference to all things in verse 20 that matches in verse 16. All things in verse 20, whether on earth or in heaven. So clearly, Paul is not talking about redemption in exclusively personal terms. Just you and God. No, he's talking about redemption in cosmic terms. The tyranny of sin and death has been broken with the death and resurrection of Christ. This is something that we need to keep straight. Jesus Christ is the central event of history. His coming, His death, His resurrection is the central event. The turning point when God began to make all things new and right once again. In fact, that's a good way to think about Paul's teaching in these few verses. In Christ, all things are being made new. And through Christ, all things are being put right. Those are, of course, monumental statements. So, we're going to focus on each one of those for just a few moments this morning in turn. First of all, from verse 18, in Christ all things are being made new. Right away, when you get to verse 18, you can hear the emphasis on newness when Paul says that Christ is the beginning. The idea is that something new has started in this world. Something new is unfolding now in history, and it begins with the Son of God. But of course, the next question comes pretty quickly, doesn't it? Christ is the beginning, but the beginning of what exactly? Well, the next phrase offers some insight. Notice what he writes. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. So Paul has Christ's resurrection in view when he speaks of Jesus as the beginning. When the Lord Jesus took back up His life on the third day, something new started. Something new began to take shape. A new creation, Paul tells us, broke into this world. You see, this is where you have to keep the overarching storyline of the Bible in mind as you read the Apostle Paul. You've got to remember that death was the primary mark of sin's curse in Genesis 3. Adam and Eve would die. The creation would suffer corruption and decay. And death would stalk the steps of every person that God had made. Those genealogical lists at the beginning of Genesis, they all have one refrain, and He died. And he died, and he died. Death is the mark of sin's curse. So throughout the Bible, whenever you see death rear its ugly head, then you know that the world is still messed up. Sin's curse continues. Genesis 3 has not been overcome. But when Christ took up his life again, and just so that we 
kind of take that out of the merely spiritual realm, when I say when Christ took up His life again, I mean that when His dead heart started beating again with blood, and when His lungs heaved together with breath, and when His eyes blinked open, and those stiff fingers began to move again, when Jesus came alive again in the tomb, a new creation was happening. That moment signaled that death's reign was coming to an end. Finally, someone died and was not dead anymore. Finally, a Redeemer had taken on sin's curse and secured salvation through the power of His indestructible life. That's the overwhelming reality of what Paul is talking about in verse 18. You might think, I don't see anything about the resurrection here. The whole New Testament is resurrection. When he says Christ is the beginning, he's telling us that a new creation has already broken into this world with the resurrection of Jesus. Death will end because Jesus is alive. Now, even as I say that, perhaps someone is thinking, that sounds nice, but in case you haven't noticed, people still die. How can the new creation have arrived when death still seems to be winning? Barring the Lord Jesus coming back, everyone in here will die. So how in the world can you say that a new creation has come? People still die. That's a good question. And I would answer it by asking you to think of the sunrise on a new day. So think of the sunrise on a new day. I'm not a morning person, so I don't remember the last sunrise I saw. I'm going on memory here. Think of the sunrise on a new day. When the first rays of the sun begin to peek over the eastern sky, you know without any doubt that day is coming. In fact, those first rays of light assure you with complete confidence that just in a matter of a few hours, the sun will be blazing hot and all the darkness will have fled. Once the sun begins to rise, night is over. It's over. But, does the sun's light immediately dispel all the darkness right at that instant? No. It takes time for the light to come. It takes time for the day to arrive in its fullness. But it will come, won't it? Every sunrise tells you that a new day is already here even if the fullness is not yet fully enjoyed. And so it is with the resurrection of Christ. Easter morning is the new creation sunrise. It's the promise that death is over. And its days are numbered. The resurrection is like those first rays of light peeking over the horizon, promising you that a new day is just around the corner, even if it takes a few hours for the fullness to get here. Just as night cannot hold back the day, so also death cannot hold back the new creation that has come in Jesus Christ. Or to quote Paul in verse 18, He is the beginning. That's what he's saying. Even so, Paul presses this a bit Deeper, not only is Christ the beginning of the new creation, He's also the founder of a new humanity. He's the founder of a new humanity. This is what Paul means when he says Christ is the firstborn from among the dead. Put very simply, there are more resurrections to come. Many more resurrections. Again, it helps to think of Genesis 3, where Adam, as the head of the human race, plunged all of his descendants into sin and death. We are all subject to death because we all share in Adam's sin. But when Christ rose from the dead, He signaled that God was bringing about a new humanity. 
God was founding a new family tree, as it were. Not rooted in the first Adam, who failed, but rooted in the second Adam, Christ, who lived and rose again. Friends, this is why Paul can say in 2 Corinthians 5 that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. What's old? Our connection with Adam, our father. What's new? Our connection with our brother, Christ, the resurrected one, who gives us eternal life. You see, incredibly, friends, the promise of a new creation is being fulfilled right now in the lives of God's people. As sinners are saved and brought from death to life, their their lives become a testimony that God is making all things new. As Christians put off the works of the flesh and learn to walk in the Spirit, we testify to the world that God will not leave things in darkness. We testify that sin will not win. God will not let sin and death have the final word. He is making all things new. And His people who are being sanctified by the Spirit are evidence that that great work has begun already in Christ. This is why the New Testament says we're being conformed to the image of Christ. Not to the image of God that was marred in the garden, but to the image of Christ because Christ is the new creation. And we are a new creation in Him. This is why the New Testament puts such a repeated emphasis on Christians living godly lives. Because we're meant to be little pictures of the new creation to come. You and me. Or to use Peter's language, we're to be ready to give a reason for the hope that is in us. What's the hope that's in us? That God is making all things new. That darkness will not win. And that even now, in the hearts of God's people, the new creation has dawned and is conforming us to the image of Christ. Brothers and sisters, your daily battle against sin is so much more than simply your personal struggle against your old self. Your daily battle against sin is part of God's grand narrative of making everything new in Christ. Your daily battle against sin is part of God's grand work of making Christ preeminent in all things. It's part of God's work of bringing glory to His Son, the One who is the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead, that in everything Christ might be preeminent, as Paul says. Do you see it, friends? If you reduce reduce the Christian life to just your own private struggle with your old self, you're missing the grandness and the glory of what God is actually doing in the hearts of His people. The entire Christian life rests on the resurrected Christ. The entire Christian life is meant to show and reveal the resurrected Christ. The One who is the beginning. The firstborn from among the dead. Our hope flows from the resurrection that God is making all things new in Jesus. And our hope then compels us out into the world with holy, godly lives. Again, this is why the New Testament puts such an emphasis on Christian character. When we tell the truth and love what is right and protect the weak and contend for righteousness and stand against wickedness, we show the world our hope that a new creation is coming. And then when we open our mouths to speak clearly and boldly about Christ, our lives confirm our witness. Our lives confirm our testimony. 
When you tell someone God is making all things new, why should they believe you? Because God's word says so, and then because God's work is evident in your life. This is how God brings glory to the Son. Or to use Paul's language here in verse 18, this is how God makes the Son preeminent in all things. He rescues sinners like us through Christ's death and resurrection. He infuses us with hope that is rooted in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then He unleashes us into this world as little pictures of the new creation. As little testimonies that Christ is the beginning. The firstborn from among the dead. Listen, what I'm trying to do here is enlarge our vision of why godliness matters. I'm trying to give you a bigger picture of what it means to live as a Christian in this world. Christ is the beginning. God is making all things new. Death will not triumph. Darkness will not have the last word. How will the world know this? Because we speak the name of Christ and then we display the character of Christ as confirmation of our witness. Christ's people, those who are new creations in Him, are called to live in a way that reveals this grand and glorious hope. Godliness does not make sense to the world. If you don't believe in God, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Why aren't you doing that, Christian? Because I believe there's a better world coming. That's what you say. You see it? It's so much more than just you and your private struggle against your old self. It's about making Christ preeminent in what we say and how we live. In Christ, all things are being made new. That's the first thing we should see. And our lives, friends, must be a testimony of that hope. As Paul moves into verse 19, he continues to expand on why Christ is the beginning. And here, Paul's emphasis is that through Christ, all things are being put right. Through Christ, All things are being put right. Now, if you have any doubt as to Paul's view of the Lord Jesus, then verse 19 clearly and definitively sets the record straight. Notice what he says, verse 19. For in Him, that is the Son, for in the Son, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Friends, that's the truth that upholds everything Paul has said. Why is Christ the beginning, the firstborn from the dead? Because in Him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Why does Christ deserve to be preeminent in all things? Because in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. You see, there can be no mistake, Jesus Christ is fully God. Jesus of Nazareth, born of Mary, walked this earth, learned a trade of carpentry, got sick to his stomach, got splinters in his fingers, stubbed his toe, had insomnia. That Jesus was fully God and fully man. All that is true of the Father is true of the Son. Even so, as Paul heads into verse 20, it's clear that he's now focused on the work of Christ. It's a striking transition, really. Verse 19 is definitive on the person of Christ, that He is fully God. While verse 20 is clear on the work of Christ, that He is the only Redeemer. You see how it moves? Verse 19, person of Christ. Verse 20, work of Christ. So notice what Paul writes, verse 20. And through Him, to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. 
I know we've mentioned it a number of times today, but you've got to go back to Genesis 3 again. By the way, just as an aside, this is why the first three chapters of the Bible absolutely must be historically true. Because if they're not, then Paul is out to lunch. Right? How can Jesus be the second Adam if the first Adam is a myth? It's just true. Okay, back to the sermon. You've got to go back to Genesis 3. Adam's sin in the garden was the start of a cosmic rebellion against God. God intended for this world to be full of life and flourishing so that His glory would be displayed in all that He has made. But because of sin, everything is at odds with that purpose. Everything is at odds with flourishing. That's what we mean when we say this world is not as it should be. Both the creation and and humanity are in rebellion against the goodness and glory of God. But here in verse 20, Paul says that Christ is the reconciliation of that breach. Christ is the end of that cosmic rebellion. All things are being put right because Jesus shed His blood on the cross. I know that might sound new to some of us to think of Christ's death on the cross as having cosmic consequences in the creation. But that's Paul's point here. It's why he says all things. He's reconciling all things. He's going to talk about us next week in verse 21. Right now, he's talking about everything, the whole world, being put to right at the cross. Nothing is excluded. Christ is supreme in creation since He made all things. And Christ is supreme in the new creation since He reconciled to Himself all things. The cross of Christ, then, is the crux of redemptive history. The cross is where God broke sin's power through Jesus. And that includes sin's power in this world. Satan and all of his demonic hordes have already been beaten. The battle's done. But just like the sunrise, it takes a while for the fullness to get here. Through Christ, God is putting all things right. The Lord Jesus is the reconciliation that God's world so desperately needs. He's reconciling all things in Himself. Now, that should raise a couple of questions in your mind that demand answers. Maybe you're not asking the questions, but someone you know will probably ask them. A couple of questions that we absolutely have to answer. Here's the first one. Since Christ reconciled all things at the cross, does this mean all people will be saved? That's that's what a number of folks contend uh, about this passage. They point to this verse and then they say, everyone is going to be saved because universalism is right there in verse 20. He reconciled all things. Therefore, all people will be saved. So, is that what this means? No. No. And don't take my word for it. I'm just a guy. You should take the Bible's word for it. And if you look just three verses later, you'll see why. Look down at verse 23. Paul is describing how salvation works. Okay, And then look at verse 23. How is this salvation going to be worked out? If indeed you continue stable and steadfast in the faith, not shifting from the hope of the Gospel. So where is salvation found? Only in the Gospel. How do you get that salvation? By holding fast to the Gospel in faith. You see, in the same same chapter, Paul answers the question. Right here in the same chapter, we have enough biblical warrant to say definitively that universalism is wrong. 
The world is being put right through Christ. And therefore, to be right with Christ yourself, you must trust in Him alone. For salvation is found only in Him. Do you trust Him? Do you trust that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who came down from heaven, laying aside His glory to be fully man and fully God, and He lived a perfect life, and He died a substitutionary death on the cross, and He rose again on the third day and ascended again to the Father's right hand, from whence He will come quickly to judge the living and the dead. Do you believe that? That, friends, is how you are saved. So when Paul says that all things are reconciled in Christ, he's not saying that every person will be saved, because only those who trust in Christ will be saved. His reconciliation is cosmic, but it's applied to His church, to the people who trust in His name by faith. So that's the first question you have to answer. The second question is equally important. If Christ reconciled all things at the cross, how do we explain the wrongs and injustices and suffering that we still see today? This is really an apologetic question. How do you explain that I'm sure you've noticed we're still surrounded by brokenness in this world. Every day, we have new evidence that something is dreadfully wrong. Every day. So how do you explain those things? Especially in light of verse 20. Well, I think it helps to view the cross of Christ as both the place of God's justice and the promise of God's justice. Think of the cross as both the place of God's justice and the promise of God's justice. Let me explain. I have done evil things in my life. Horrible things. I have done what the Bible calls wicked and sinful. I have lived in ways that reveal sin's curse, both in my own heart, and I have lived in ways that inflict sin's curse on other human beings. But at the cross, the Lord Jesus bore the justice of God against my wickedness. Christ satisfied God's wrath against my evil. You see, the cross is the place of God's justice for me. It's the place where God's justice was manifested against my horrible fallen self. And at the same time, I have had evil things done to me. I have endured wickedness at the hands of other people. I have suffered, even in some small way, the effects of sin's curse on this world. How do I handle that? How do I process those things? By looking to that same cross as the promise of God's justice. The holy God will not let those things go. God will not just wink His eye and sweep those things under the rug. How do I know that? Because the cross proves to me His unfailing commitment to do what is right. You, friends, you do understand that the cross is more about God than it is about you and me. The cross is to demonstrate that God is righteous because in His divine forbearance He passed over former sins. The crosses are unfailing proof that God will not let sin go. So when I see wicked things in the world, I can know beyond any doubt God either put that to right in Jesus, just like He put my wrongs to right, or God will make that right on the last day because I know He's committed to justice. So when I see suffering, and I'm talking about horrible, wretched, awful suffering, I look to the cross. It's the only way to maintain sanity as a believer. 
It's the only way to have understanding and hope in this world. The cross is both the place of God's justice and the promise of God's justice. I look to the cross and it helps me to see rightly. Friends, this is why Christians can forgive those who wrong them. That's that's an amazing command from Jesus. Forgive people, even if they don't ask for it. Why can we do that? Because of the gospel work of Christ. This is why we can return good for evil. Because of the reconciliation God has begun in Christ. This is why we can turn the other cheek and love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. Because we have this assurance that God will make things right. How do you know that? Because He put His Son to death for me. We, of all people, know that a great reckoning is coming. It it already started on Good Friday. And therefore, we of all people should be the ones out there in the brokenness of the world laboring for goodness, righteousness, justice, and truth. That's our job. Last year, I I met a delightful Christian couple who work in gospel ministry in uh, Italy. Leandro and Natalie introduced them to me. And I got to spend some time with them over a cup of coffee. The wife of this couple works in a ministry that rescues women from human trafficking. And in her updates that she sends, she refers to these women as treasures, which is absolutely right and biblically beautiful. She refers to them as treasures. When I was hanging out with them during our time, she she shared just a few stories with me about the work that she does. They go out to the streets and they just appeal for these women to come in. In every story she told me, there was one common thread that she kept coming back to, the power of the gospel. Right? The hope of the cross. That darkness would not win. Where does that kind of boldness come from? Verse 20. It comes from here. Verse 20. That's the kind of boldness that this should produce in us. The boldness of knowing that because of Christ, the darkness of this world will not prevail and therefore I can go out into it. I can confront it. I can deal with it honestly. Because I know what God is doing in Christ. Listen, I want to be very clear at this point so that no one misunderstands me. I don't want there to be a perceived objection that obscures what is really important for us to hear. So let me just be absolutely clear. The message of the cross is Christ crucified for the salvation of sinners. And the mission of the church is to proclaim that message. Okay, The message is Christ crucified. The mission is proclaim that message. At the same time, An implication of the cross is that Christians, of all people, should be the ones who confront sin's effects in this world. They're not mutually exclusive. In fact, if we don't confront such things, then we undermine the very mission and the message that we claim to offer. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. In the Bible, glorify God means get saved. Okay? Let your light so shine before men that they see your good works and glorify your God in heaven. After God's presence, do you know what light is most associated with in the Bible? Creation. So I take Jesus in Matthew 5 to be saying, let your light as little new creations shine before men that they would see your good works and glorify God in heaven. 
Again, brothers and sisters, I really only have one aim this morning. I have one point that I'm trying to make. I'm trying to enlarge our vision of what it means to live the Christian life. I am increasingly afraid that far too often we reduce the Christian life to merely its vertical dimension. We reduce the Christian life to merely its vertical dimension so that all that matters, supposedly, is my personal relationship to God. And while that vertical dimension is massively important and even foundational, it is not the sum total of the Christian life. Loving your enemies, praying for those who persecute you, practicing truthful, loving speech that is gracious and seasoned with salt, walking in wisdom before outsiders, giving a reason for the hope that is in you. These are bold ways of living out the reality of the new creation here and now. Being a Christian is about so much more than you and Jesus. It's about using every aspect of your life to show the world that Christ is supreme. We preach the name of Christ and we display the love of Christ all because we believe in the supremacy of Christ. It undermines our gospel if we don't have both. The preaching of Christ and the displaying of the love of Christ. Because He is supreme. And through Him, God is making all things new. Again, I'm ju- I just want to enlarge our vision. So if it feels like I'm trying to blow up some of your categories, it's because I am. I want us to have a bigger vision of what it means. Because Christ is supreme over what? Everything. The last phrase of verse 20 reminds us of the reason God's people can live with hope in this world. Notice this last phrase, and we'll, we'll close with this. Paul says, through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, here comes the phrase, making peace by the blood of his cross. That really sets us up for next week, but we'll leave that for then. Making peace by the blood of his cross. Since verse 15, Paul has been unfolding the exalted glory of the Son of God. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead. Verse after verse, we've been inundated with glory after glory after glory. And yet, where does this exalted paragraph end? Not with heavenly visions of grandeur, but with the shame and gore of a bloody cross. That's where the glory of Christ leads us, is to the cross. It's the reality of the incarnation. The one who is the image of the invisible God, verse 15, is the same one who took up the cross for us and our salvation, verse 20. We go into this world with the proclamation and with hope. We go into this world because Christ came first into our world for us and our salvation. It's the person and work of Christ that grounds everything else. The cross then is the place of Christ's supremacy. If you want to know the glory of Christ, then look to the cross. The cross is where the triune God displayed once and for all that darkness would not win, that His people would be saved, and that all things would be made new once again. It's at the cross. May God then make us people of the cross. This is our calling. May we proclaim the cross where Christ was crucified for the salvation of sinners, And may we be shaped by the cross 
laying down our lives for the glory of God and for the good of others. And friends, I'll say it again. You have to have both. We proclaim the cross and we are shaped by the cross. He is the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Amen. Let's pray. Father, help us. Please rescue us from our very small views of this thing called the Christian life. Please rescue us, Father, from this very myopic vision to where we reduce things to just being about our own personal relationship to you. And by all means, God, help us to understand that if we don't know you personally by faith, then we're not your child. But help us to also understand, Father, that you don't want merely the hidden spiritual aspects of our life. You want all of our lives lived in all spheres of this world because Christ is supreme over all things. Would you help us? Father, there are things that we need to repent of. There are things that we need to change. There are places where we need to take tangible steps of obedience. God, we need boldness to do this. We need faith. Would you help us? We want to be people who are shaped by the cross because we know that it's at the cross that the glory of Christ is seen most clearly. So would you give us boldness, God, to proclaim Christ and Him crucified? And would you help us, Father, to have the humility to be shaped by Christ and Him crucified? That we would lay down our lives. That we would remember the Lord Jesus' call to take up the cross and follow me. Help us, God. We need your help. We ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Joel, please stand. Let's sing together.